<clears throat> Sorry. Oop, that came off. I know how to do this. I've been using this breath prayer. What's that? Okay, I just want to go up a little bit. That one, right? <clears throat> Some of you practiced breath prayers with me uh, a couple weeks ago. And I've been, I've been using this one for a little while. And I want to just start with that, if you don't mind. Um, find a comfortable position. And um, if you want to join me, I try to do it in uh, kind of a s- slow breath in, hold it for a second, and then a slow breath out. Um, I'm using these four syllables to do it. <clears throat> and this, this particular one is Jesus, fill me, little pause, and then with your passion. So it's kind of a rhythmic four syllables in, four syllables out. So it's hard to do it and talk about it at the same time, but I'll, I'll talk I'll talk it through. If you want to join me, you can close your eyes if you want. You don't have to. Jesus, fill me with your passion. Jesus, fill me, breathe in, with your passion. Breathe out. Jesus, fill me with your Passion. Spirit, fill me with your passion. Father, fill me with your passion. Jesus, fill us with your passion. God, will you breathe into us today your life-giving word. Inspire us. Rouse us. Awaken us to what you are doing, even as we come from many different places with all kinds of worries, joys, and tears. Speak to each one of us and all of us right where we are in the way that each of us needs and in the way that we need together. Gently as we need, more pointedly if we need that. God, you know us. You're the lover of our souls. Plant your word in us today. Awaken that word. Grow that word in us and through us to the world around us. In the name of Jesus, amen. What makes you cry? <laughs> a lot of stuff, I guess. I watched In- Inside Out recently. Uh, I got 
That was a tearjerker. Thanksgiving, I was cutting onions, a lot of onions. And my daughter and I searched the house for goggles. And I found some, some goggles. And they worked great. I cut up a whole couple onions. And then we needed more. And I had the goggles on my forehead. And I started cutting. And I just was tearing. And I was like, oh, I forgot my goggles. And then I put them on, and it was too late. I was just... <laughs> And, and I was like, ah, I'm crying inside my goggles. <laughs> and I thought that sounded like a good song, so I started singing it. I'm crying inside my goggles. I, I was so enamored with my song, I kept singing it. And my daughter wanted to go back to college early. She was like, Dad, at least no one's here to listen. At least no one will ever find out about this. <laughs> Until Sunday. Uh, and I cried when I saw the devastation of the campfire in paradise. 14,000 homes destroyed. Many people losing loved ones. And all their stuff. Their place their favorite places, their homes, schools, stores, restaurants. It's horrible. They can't go back for a long time. There's nothing to go back to. Nothing there to sustain them. It's a barren wasteland. And tears are appropriate. What do we do with our tears? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about what it means, a little bit about what it means to be houseless, homeless, and then what I'm calling true homeless. What does that mean? And so we come to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has a nickname, the crying prophet. He was a piece of work, Jeremiah. His emotion, his passion, his humanity was evident. He really cared about the people. And he had a lot of really terrible news for them. And they did not like it. Judah and Jerusalem, destruction was coming because of their unfaithfulness. They'd broken the covenant God had made with them time and again. And now, after a lot of prophesying by Jeremiah, Babylon was on their doorstep and just about to sack Jerusalem and take all the people into captivity, drag them away from their homes, make them instantly homeless. Jeremiah was known, so known for delivering such terrible news that he was jailed, he was thrown into a, a pit with mud in the bottom, and uh, sometimes Susie says, I'm Jeremiah, and I'm Jeremiah wasn't unique. Uh, nobody listened to any of the prophets, really. But I guess Jeremiah, they really didn't like him at all. They threw him into a pit. He's in the mud. When they finally pulled him out, and, and were, he was kind of under threat, he prophesied again and said, yeah, it, you're still going to be destroyed. And he said to the king, he said kind of metaphorically, king, you're 
feet are stuck in the mud as the destroyers are approaching. Just after he got pulled out of the mud, that was kind of like, oh, come on, Jeremiah. Ooh. Um, so Jeremiah, he's kind of known for these doom and gloom prophecies. Destruction is approaching. It's coming true. The people see it. They are being invaded and conquered. And what does Jeremiah do? After all this doom and gloom, he goes out and buys a field. And it symbolizes hope that all these people who are about to be violently displaced will have a homecoming. He buys a field in the face of destruction. And then he comes out with this amazing prophecy of homecoming, not just for Israel, not just for rebuilding their homes, but for all of creation. It's a, like a cosmic homecoming. And in fact, Ezekiel and Isaiah also talk about this, and, and the phrases they use are amazing. I'll just read a few of them. The Lord will bring them home. I will gather you from the countries I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. The land laid waste will become the Garden of Eden, creation itself. The wilderness will bloom. The lame will leap like deer. There will be streams in the barren desert. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Even this one's amazing. Babylon and Assyria will be brought in to the fold. That song we just sang said, uh, all people will be of, of one heart and mind. Won't that be amazing? Well, this is not, this is not just a, a, a rebuilding project for Jerusalem. This is the restoration of everything. It's clear. It's not just infrastructure. It's even more than restoring institutions and relationships and uh, familial love and, and that kind of comfort. It's more than that. Every nation and every human being will be restored, brought back to their true home that they have lost. And then Jeremiah comes to this, the pivotal passage. We're not quite to our passage yet. In uh, Jeremiah 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah is describing everyone's true home. The Israelites who are dragged off and homeless, and yours and mine. This is God's promise of restoration, and then Jeremiah reveals how he's going to do it. A righteous branch from David's line Everyone knew this language spoke of the long-awaited Messiah, the son of David, who would restore Israel 
And for those who remembered, all of creation would be restored also through this long-awaited one. John Calvin speaks of the language that's used here. I will fulfill, I will rouse, I will awaken, germinate, to make that to appear which was before hidden, as the root which nourishes the tree is not seen, but lies hid in the earth, so ought our faith to be in like manner founded and to drive deep roots into God's promises. A kingdom in which would be found perfect happiness and safety. Not that we enjoy this joyful and peaceful state in the world. The faithful shall ever be exposed to many troubles. Wait, what was that? Mr. Calvin, some people think to become a Christian means that now you're going to be kind of protected by God, relatively safe. If I'm good, God won't let anything really bad happen to me. And if it does, it shows you weren't doing it right. Remember the gumball machine, Faith? All right, wait a minute. I didn't get a gumball. I did something wrong. I didn't put enough. Maybe I put a Canadian quarter in there. Sorry, sorry, Canadians. <laughs> know your audience. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to call it Three Little Pigs, Faith. Um, I think, you know the story. The first one, lazy, builds his house out of straw. I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. You guys know this story, right? Just nod your heads. Okay. The wolf blows it down, eats the pig, you know, has bacon. Um, next one, not quite as lazy, the sticks, he gets eaten. And then finally, the smart one, the diligent one, the strong one, the hardworking pig makes a brick house. And, of course, the wolf can't get in the brick house. And... You know, sometimes I think that's what our culture says to us. And maybe too often we hear that even about Christianity. That's kind of what you do. If you do it right, if you, if you work hard enough, you can, you can create a brick house and the wolf won't be able to blow it down. Although the, the wolf does sneak in through the chimney and the, the great ending of that story is he falls into the, the boiling pot and they have wolf for dinner. Really? That's, that's the great end to the story? You get to eat wolf? Yeah, I don't know. If you, uh, why don't kids, when you get to that part of the story, go, Ew! Anybody who has kids knows if wolf for dinner, you know, that, there's going to be tears on that. We don't want wolf. We teach in our culture that we can create our own true homes. We can create houses, of course, and, and we can create homes. We can have relationships that are life-giving, where our work is meaningful, we care about others, we feel loved. But we can never, I'm going to say, create 
or work toward our true home. The home we were made for. And nothing we can do, even the best of the best of us, can never save ourselves from suffering or bring ourselves finally into our true home. The best we can do is make a brick house and the wolf still gets in and you have to eat the wolf. And that's not great news in my book. Hollywood tells us that happiness is not to be found in, in temporal things, in, in money and wealth, right? Every story is a love story of some kind. Every story says if you have meaningful family and you find that one true love person, you complete me, then, then that's the real meaning of life. Do you ever notice the movie always ends shortly after the first kiss or the wedding? And, and, and then, so Hollywood love lasts forever, right? Because the movie ends and you don't see what happens after the honeymoon. You don't see real life. Not just houses get blown away by hurricanes and fires. Family love does too. We want the kind of forever love that we can only get through our true home. That's the, that's the true home. That's what we're craving. And we just kind of approximate it. I mean, romantic love, family love is fantastic. I love you, Susie. But you know what? It's not forever. It's not. There's no marriage in heaven. We won't need it. This thing that we have is great, but we won't need it when we get to our true home. We have a, we did this at the greenhouse. Josiah's going to help me. Um, this is, we've been using this banner for a few years now. So some people from the greenhouse might recognize it. But this is uh, from a children's Bible that, um, okay, you can stop. I think I'll, I'll back up. I haven't looked at this for a while, but I probably still remember it. Do you remember this, Noah? Um, never stopping. You can say it with me. Never stopping, never giving up, always and, nope, oh, sorry, I did it wrong. Unbreaking, always and forever love. This is our true home. And all the kids at the greenhouse memorized this. And we uh, told a lot, of, a lot of stories about God's love and redemption. Um, thank you, Josiah. This, um, this kind of love is only available through this branch of David, this promise that God, through Jeremiah, says he's going to fulfill. Thank you. Take the, stroll, the scroll, roll it up, and sit down. Psalm 90 says, Lord, through all the generations, you have been our home. God is the home we are missing. The one we were made to walk and talk with. 
God who prepares a banquet for us in the presence of our enemies, not just boiled wolf. God who prepares this is the one that we were made for, and we crave that forever love. Every person we've ever loved has either let us down or will. And even if they're the best ever, they're going to die. Or you will. Or both. People, the best relationships we have can never be our true forever home. It's terrible to see the destruction in paradise and see people who are houseless. And also, it's a tragedy when people are homeless. And by that, I mean without loving relationships, meaningful work, care, and some comfort, enough food to eat. But these comforts of home can be a facade. True homelessness is shared by every one of us. It can't be touched by lots of great stuff or even great relationships. But if we know that God's promise says that we do have a true home and that it's being created without our effort for us, that can give hope to everyone, even people who are buried under the weight of separation and alienation and homelessness, lack of love, lack of relationship, lack of place. So if we have this true home, how do we get there? We can't find our own way. Sin and self-centeredness isolates us, alienates us. But we have a new promise. Right there in Jeremiah, a new covenant. And Hebrews 8, 6 says, But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. The tears of dislocation, the empty holes in our hearts because deep down we know that this world, nothing in this world can provide that forever love that we crave. Those tears are shared by the only one who can bring us our true home. That branch of David that was hidden is revealed. And he's not a conquering hero riding on a war horse. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, riding on a donkey. 
born to an unwed teen mom in a barn, heralded by some outcast shepherds in a field. Jesus is born homeless. And he goes into exile in Egypt immediately to escape violence. Jesus is always in exile during his whole life and ministry. It says foxes have holes and birds have nests and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. His family, he was alienated from them. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was possessed by a demon. His friends all betrayed him. Jesus was a homeless wanderer. And when he finally, purposefully, the gospel says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And when he got in view of the city, what did he do? He wept. He cared for those people so much. He wept and he said, how I've longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen. Finally, he was exiled outside the city walls where he faced the cross. He was cast out, exiled by his father. His father turned his face away from him so that we could have God's face turned toward us and shine on us. Jesus got that total darkness. When Jesus died, there was darkness. He was abandoned. Everyone abandoned him. Friends, family, even God. And in that darkness, we will know that even though we will have darkness, for sure, God's face can shine on us. And eventually, we will have our true home. And that shining face will lead us. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just a few hours earlier, he had told his disciples, I go ahead of you to do what? To prepare a place for you. What's that? That's our true home. That's the place that Jesus went ahead to prepare for us. And what does that mean? The most beautiful home you can imagine, the most beautiful house, the most beautiful family and life situation is nothing compared to this. This true home, Jesus opens the door and welcomes you in. He's paid for it at great cost with his blood. It's beautiful and it lasts forever. 
And what it is is a, a true reconciled relationship because of nothing we've done, a relationship with the one who made us through Jesus. Jesus, fill us with your passion. Jesus, fill us. Fill us with your passion. It's far more intimate than you can imagine. And when we contemplate this sacrifice that we will celebrate, we can realize that any darkness we go through is nothing compared to that darkness Jesus faced. And we will be satisfied one day. And it's not because... It's nothing that we do to satisfy a distant and angry God. It's, we're not frantically trying to stitch together a house that will keep the wolves at bay. No, we're just responding in gratitude to the one who's already made us a house that's so much better than brick. And we can be free then and energized to see the needs of others, to weep because of the dislocation and the pain of others. Even while the wolf is biting us on the rear, because he will. And this true home that we have, this relationship, we can visit there now. We have a way to get a little taste of that home because we can go to God. We can go to the lover of our souls in prayer. And with gratitude. And Tim Keller talks about tears. The tears that we shed in the darkness and the difficulty, the dislocation, the alienation and the exile, the tears that we shed, the Psalms say it somewhere, and I can't find it right now, but the tears that we sow will reap sheaves of joy. Think about that. And it's not just that We cry for a while, and then we get tired of crying, and then joy comes later. No. This is saying that we cry, and the crying produces. The crying waters and brings forth joy. The crying leads to joy. The Psalms are so raw. Some of them, and the thing about the Psalms is that the writers of the Psalms cry out, but they're not just complaining. They're crying out, and sometimes complaining, to God. They're bringing their tears to God. And those tears 
are working, are working for them. And those tears can work for us. We have, our culture, our culture is weird. Our culture says, uh, don't cry. I, I can't even tell you how many times I heard that growing up. Don't cry. Just, you know, you're not supposed to cry. Or, you know, that's not polite, polite company. Or, or if you're a Christian, you can't cry. That's such bull. Um, we say stuff it, or, or, or we say uh, fix blame, find someone to blame. Either blame yourself and say, ah, you know, or others, or God, but just dump it all. That's not sowing your tears. That's, that's taking all your tears in a big bag of seed and just dumping it in the garbage. Sowing your tears, the only way you can do that is to bring them to God. Bring them to your true home. Don't waste your sorrows by complaining and being self-pitying or, or blaming others or self-blaming or God-blaming. Bring those tears to God and sow them for an eternal glory. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 says. This light and momentary affliction, tears, is achieving for us. We don't just push it aside. It's, it's doing something for us. It's achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. That's the kind of joy we need in order to help the people around us. In order to, like that song said, all peoples are of one heart and mind. As Christians grow in grace, I think they should cry more. Ezekiel in 2 Corinthians says, I remove from them their hearts of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. God wants to make your heart softer, more vulnerable, more touchable. We, we can see people around the world and we might try to steel ourselves against their pain. We might, you might even feel disdain for people who are messing up. Like, ah, they deserve it. That idiot built his house of straw. He deserves to be bacon. Um, they're messing up and that's on them. And we see the people who are um, just devastated by the loss of their community. Or when we see families that are walking from Central America with no home, driven away by violence, strangers in a strange land. And I, I think about my neighbors, my friends, who made that same trip. And I look at their children that I know. And I think about my country tearing them apart. Don't avoid your tears and don't just 
Express them. Plant them. Invest them. And reap the joy. Second Samuel says, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people or wolves will not oppress them anymore. My love will never be taken away from him. Let's pray. God, the psalmists show us that you know what it's like when we're desperate. And you don't distance yourself. You walk right in and come near to us when we pray with abandon. Psalm 104 says, when you hide your face, God, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. To see the shining face of God is blessing and life. God, will you turn your face toward us? Will you give us a glimpse of our true home? Will you give us, will you fill us with your passion? The passion that you brought to the cross. The passion that causes us to remember and to come together in a new way as your children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.